0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, we are going to now uh, continue in our in our summer teaching series through the Old Testament. We've been looking at different big themes and passages and stories and uh, types of uh, types of things that point us to Jesus, that that help prepare the way for Christ, and looking at all these different stories. And today we look at uh, a really important figure in the life of any Christian, and Christianity uh, in general, and that is uh, King David. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to read from Second Samuel chapter 7. And I'll give you a second just to kind of flip there and to find your way uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where you can follow along on the screen um, for that as well. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house that is, King David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell your servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel, From Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in in their own place and may be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you Whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What comes to mind when you think of the idea of a king? Or the idea of a kingdom? You know, as we think about that. In a Western culture and society, we have no king. What comes to mind when you think of the idea of a king? Several years ago, I took a trip to Oslo, Norway. And we visited the royal palace in the capital city of Oslo. And you didn't know Norway's a, a monarchy, uh, much like the United Kingdom is a, is a monarchy. And the royal palace was spectacular. It was amazing. It was incredibly beautiful. It was this large palace on the top of a hill overlooking the entire city. And I was impressed. It was heavily guarded. It was, it was with these, these majestic uh, guards, these armed guards with the, you know, the fuzzy black hats. You know what I'm talking about? And at the time, Oslo was the most expensive city in the world to live in, and their palace showed it, and their city showed it, and everything about Oslo was just spectacular. The locals, though, as they toured us around the city, they they were not as impressed as, as I was or those visiting. They were almost bored by it all, and they had to go to the palace again. And I remember saying, this is amazing. What an amazing thing in the center of the city, at the top of the hill. You have this palace, and you can visit, you can be here, and this is where your king lives, and you're not impressed. And they said, well, yes, we, we have a king, but our king has no power. Our king uh, has no real political or executive power. He's not sovereign. He's really just a mascot for our country. And this is, these are the exact words that they use. He's a mascot for our country. The real power, however, rests in elected parliament by the people. And sure we have a king, but the power is with the parliament, is that is elected through a democratic process. And so really, we have a king, but he doesn't do anything, he's just a mascot. If you know the truth about the Norwegian king, you'll feel uninspired. You'll feel unimpressed. It's just it's all a show. It's 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 all an impression and really not much more than that. And so my journey up this hill was really enchanted. I mean it was filled with wonderment. It was filled with awe and reverence. You can feel that you're, you're in the presence of something uh, wonderful. But my trip down the hill was much different. That enchantment had left. It wasn't, I wasn't impressed anymore now knowing what I knew about the king. It just became this big house with a really rich man inside. Have you ever wondered why King David is such an important figure to Christians? Have you ever wondered why he's such an important thing, that the kingdom of God and, and the king is such an important uh, type and, and, and image for Christians? Consider the songs that we sing at Christmas time and the passages that we read when we talk about the birth of Christ. You are going to hear about King David every Christmas, whether you sing about it or read about it. Even the Gospels are going to tell us that, that Jesus is referred to as the Son of David. The New Testament means to tell us something really important about, about King David and about Jesus, something so important. The more that we understand King David, the more that we're going to be able to understand King Jesus. The more we understand the kingdom of David that was promised to him, we are going to be, un- be able to understand the kingdom of God that has come and is promised to God's people. And so the way the Bible talks about Jesus as king is, is not a figure of speech, some, somewhat like the Norwegian king. It's not just... It's not just a mascot. He's not a, he's not a mascot for Christianity. It means nothing less. The kingdom of God and Christ as king means nothing less than his perfect and forever rule over all of creation. And if we miss the story of Jesus as king, he will too feel powerless to us and uninspiring. And when we think about Jesus as our true king, we will feel unimpressed. Yeah, that's great, he's our king, but, but he doesn't really do anything today. And, you know, the true story is that Jesus, the true and everlasting king, created all things in love. And he has the power and vision to see it through to its glorious end. And he promises that, that he will do that. And it's that reality that we look forward to. That Jesus will come in bodily and physical and real sense and he will reign over all of creation and reign in our lives as our true king, sovereign, powerful. And no place sets the table better for us to understand King Jesus than in this particular story regarding King David in 2 Samuel. And here's how the story goes. David is king over all of Israel. God's people for centuries had experienced oppression from their enemies, they'd experienced war, they'd experienced famine, they'd experienced great oppression at the hands of, of other people. But now God is working through David as their second king, and he's beginning to see great military success. They're beginning to see great prosperity economically. They're, they're beginning to get into a place in their, in their culture and society where there's peace, there's rest. They've made a name for themselves, and David is king over it all. And things are very good. And David it says that he's in his house made of cedar and he is enjoying the rest from his military success. A cedar house. Now, I recently just built some cedar bookshelves in our house and I chose cedar because they were really cheap. But in those days, cedar was inexpensive. I mean, it was, it was very expensive. It was very rare. It was very beautiful. To be in a cedar house was to be in a, and to be in a magnificent house. And so try to understand it in that way. When it says that David lived in a cedar house, it means David was living very, very well. Cedar was beautiful. And while David lives in a luxury, God is living in a tent. And so the presence of God from the days of Moses, you remember this in Exodus we talked about, they built a tabernacle and the presence of God would dwell among his people in, the, in this tent, and Moses would go into the tabernacle to commune with God, communicate with God on behalf of the people, and he would come out from the tabernacle, having been in the presence of God, and he would speak to the people, and God would, as they wandered through the desert, God would wander with them in this tent, made of canvas or animal skin, and just, it, or just, it was probably rotting by this point, it's over 100 years old. David's living in luxury and God's living in a tent. And David says, God, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to do something special for you. I'm living in this great house. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house to live in. How's that sound, God? Isn't that awesome? Pretty thoughtful of me, isn't it? And God says this through the, through the prophet Nathan. He goes to the prophet Nathan, and, and he says, tell this to David. David wants to do something for me, but I'm going to do something for him. He's not going to build me a house, not now, not him, but I'm going to do something for him. And what he says is going to be pretty great. What he says he's going to do for David is going to be amazing. He says he's going to do three things. He says he's going to make his name great. He's going to give him a place and his people a place that they can live in so they won't have to wander forever through the desert. And he's going to be with them in a temple in a fixed place forever. And he says, I'm going to establish the throne of your kingdom where someone from your family will sit on this throne forever. Forever. Pretty great, isn't it? This is a good day for David. He's resting, he's enjoying military success, and now God lays this on him. This is good news for David and God's people. God wants David to know that this is the kind of promise that is so radical. And he says, David, this is not contingent on you. This isn't contingent on what you're going to do for me. You will not be successful for me. You will be successful through me. And I will work through you, David, to be successful. He says, death won't stop it. You're going to die, but this promise is going to continue on. Sin won't be able to thwart it. He says, even if you or your descendants or your sons sin, as they will do, which we see in Scripture, my plan will be continued, and it will go on, and I will reach this. So this isn't a bad day. And David's response is so good. It's so great. He hears this promise and he replies in such a great way. He replies in such a great way that every single one of us should, should read these words and understand these words to know how we should respond to God when God gives us a blessing, when He communicates His gospel and good news to us. Look at verse 18 to 19 and what He does. He says, This. He says, King David went in and sat before the Lord and He said, Who am I? And what is my house? Who am I and who is my family that you would do this to me? He says, this is such a small thing for you, but it's amazing to me. And then he says, this is important for mankind. Everyone should know this, that you are this way. This is important for all of us to understand. It's important for you and me to understand as we look at this story. And he says, of course, this is no surprise to me that you would act this way. You have from time... And time again, you have been a God of abundant blessing, abundant grace, abundant faithfulness. You have always said you will do things and you always come through, God. Of course you would do something like this. Here I am sitting thinking, I'm going to do something for you. And again, you pour over your blessing over me. He recognizes God's exceedingly abundant grace. Here I am, I want to do something for you and you're going to do something for me and it blows me away. And then he says, this instruction's for mankind, and it is for us. And so let's look closely at this. He uses the word, when he says instruction, he uses the word Torah. This is God's divinely inspired teaching, instruction, law, message to us. And it is for you and me today, so many years later. God promises to make their name great. Now let's dig in and kind of look specifically at this blessing and how it relates to us, what it means for them and how it relates to us and what God wants us to learn. The first is, like I said, God wants to make their name great. He's going to make them a great name. And for David and, and the Israelites, uh, the way in which he's going to make them famous, that's what that means. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you famous and privileged and popular. I'm going to, I'm going to, your reputation, people are going to know about you. But it's directly tied to God's presence with them. It hinges on God's presence with them. Have you heard about the Israelites? Yeah. Yeah, they're the people that have the one true God, that when they go out into military pursuits, the power of God them victory. Yeah, of course I've heard about the Israelites. They have God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that parted the, the, the sea for, and rescued his people from Egypt, from slavery, and, that, and destroyed Pharaoh's army. Yeah, I know the Israelites. They're the ones that have the most powerful and true God. God is saying, not everyone's going to have this privilege of being able to say that I am their God. There are three people in the entire universe, that have the privilege of calling me Dad. And you would not think that I was a jerk by not giving that privilege to others, would you? Oh Pete's not doing anything wrong by not sharing that privilege with anyone. These are his kids. He has three that are able to call him Dad. And God says in the same way, they're only I have a unique, there's a unique privilege I'm giving to these people that I will be your God, that I will dwell with you. That you will know me in ways that no one else will and you'll be famous because I'm with you you're famous because I give you this privilege and to be fair for me no one's really lining up for that privilege you know but they were for Yahweh they were for Yahweh to be privileged to have the God of Isaac and Abraham Isaac and Jacob to God the God who rescued his people from Egypt Wherever they went into battle, when they had the presence of God, when they had the Ark of the Covenant with them, they had success. Wherever they went, where they came upon armies that were ten times as big as theirs, no matter what, God would give them victory and blessing. And people knew it, and the rumors would spread. It's because God is with them. And this wasn't superstition. It wasn't, they weren't superstitious. Well, if we bring this Ark of the Covenant with us, God will give us blessing. It was because the power of God was with his people. Why why is David famous? We know about David. We talk about him today. Why is he famous? At the most basic level, David is famous because, verse 8, God says, I took you from the pasture and I made you a prince. That you would be prince over my people. David is famous because of God's sheer, abundant grace. He says, you were following the sheep. See, not even a good shepherd. (laughs) You weren't even a good one. You're, everyone knows you've got to be in front. You're, you're the one walking around with the sheep, and I took you out of that, and I made, you, I made you a prince over my people. David is famous because God is a God of sheer grace. I took you from the pasture, and I put you in the palace. One of the, socially, one of the most difficult things to do, believe it or not, in our society, is to accomplish something called social mobility within generations. Now what this means is that means if your parents are in a social, economic, upper class, then the likelihood that you will be is very high, like 80%. If you grew up in a poor, lower class, working class, service-oriented class, the likelihood that you will be, if your parents did, the likelihood that you will be is very high. And the likelihood that your children will be is very high, and your your grandchildren, and so on. One of the hardest things, that, you know, we could talk at, at length of the causes of this and how to remedy it, but that's different place, different time, and probably need to hold something cold in our hand as we drink it. But that's... <laughs> but the reality is it's very hard to do that. You'll actually be... You're more likely to get the flu this winter than you are to change your class of your parents and your kids to change the class that you are in. So this social... Economic mobility is very, very hard. Look at what God is telling David. If God said, if I were to tell you, your father was a shepherd and you're going to be a shepherd and your kids are going to be a shepherd and your grandkids are going to be shepherds, no one would think anything of it. No one would think I was being a, a cruel God. You would come to expect it. This is how it works. No one would be surprised what God says. Instead, He says, Your dad was a shepherd. You're a shepherd. Your kids are going to be shepherds. But I'm going to do something different. I'm going to pluck you out of the pasture. And I'm going to put you in the palace. And God accomplishes something that is so difficult to accomplish then and even now. And to have this mobility, to have this prosperity from being in a place of poverty. Do You see, that's why we love those stories. That's why we love it. You know, during the times of Olympics where we see these people... Rising from the ashes and living in a car for 15 years and then winning gold in the Olympics. We, we are inspired. Why do we love these stories? Because it's so hard to do. God is saying, I'm going to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. See what God's saying? God's saying, I don't want you to build me a temple. Not you, not now. The way that you're going to approach me is going to be utterly different from how others uh, approach other religions and how other religions are pursued. See, religion says this. This is what you have to do to connect with God. This is what you have to do to have upward mobility, so to speak, in your relationship with God and in your faith. You want to grow? You want to connect with God from where you are? Here's what you have to do in order to connect. God is separating himself from this kind of thinking by doing this to David. He says, if I let you build me a house because of your military success, then it will look like my presence in your life is because of the good that you have done. And I'm not going to let that happen. And I won't let you do something either. If I won't let you try to reward me for the good that I've done for you. So if I give you this abundant blessing and grace and you build me a house in response, then it looks like I'm receiving payment for my grace. And if I receive payment for my grace, then it's not grace at all. Then it's, it's actually, I'm giving you a wage. You earned it. You worked your way for it. And God says, I'm not going to let that happen either. Here's what I'm going to do. You don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a throne that your family will be on forever. Religion says, here's what you can do to connect with God. And the gospel says, this is what has been done for you so that you can connect with God. God came to a shepherd boy, and he made him a king. And he made a promise to this king that neither death nor sin will take away God's promise. God is going to make David famous, not because of what he has done or what he will do, but because of his sheer grace. And the New Testament says it so well. And it says, so it is with us who trust in Jesus. In Romans 10, this is the very thing in the New Testament that is said, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not knowing how God works through Jesus, we all try to pursue this kind of righteousness, this righteousness on our own. How do we connect with God? How can we become good? How can we work hard to have a relationship with him? We, we attempt to establish our own righteousness. In other words, we try to establish our own name. We try to make a great name for ourselves by what we do and how we act and how we live. But we fail to do that. We try so many different things, but we fail to do it because we're never good enough. But through faith in Jesus, who is good enough, we're justified, we're made right with God, we are pardoned of our sin, we are made great, our name is made great because of his greatness. God makes us famous in Christ, not because there is something great about us, but something great about him. And this is exactly what God is doing with David. This isn't about what you have done, David. This isn't about what you can do for me. This is about my sheer grace to you. All religions are not alike. All religions are not just different ways to God. The way to the God of the Bible is utterly different than every other religion. And in fact, the way to the God of the Bible is utterly opposed to earning. It is opposed to working. When you, when you hear the gospel, the gospel is that. It's that good news of God's righteousness, of Jesus' righteousness and perfection credited to us by faith. No good of our own and no matter of our own. What is your first response? What comes to mind? Is it gratitude or, is it, or do you become defensive? You know, you'll be defensive if you are trusting in anything else Anything to establish your name with God apart from Christ. If you're trying to be that good Christian, if you're trying to live that good life, if you're trying to make your parents proud or trying to make God proud, you'll feel defensive if God says it's not about you and what you do because you'll think, but I've done so well. I've been trying so hard. I've made good progress in my life. Is this all for a waste? You may think, I'm, I'll do fine making a great name for our, myself. I'm doing really good. I can make a great name for myself without God's help. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. We know we are truly understanding the gospel when it's really, we're really getting it. We really understand and begin to grasp it when we are reminded of it. When we're reminded of what it's like to be without it. And we're grateful for it. Much like David's response. Here he is, he's a king in a castle, and he's living in great prosperity, and this good news comes to him, and what does he say? He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm good enough as it is, thanks so much. He, sa- he comes and he sits, sits in the presence of God, and he humbles himself, and he says, I, I know what I would be like without, without it, without your grace. I'd be nothing. Nothing. David was in his palace, and even then he remembers, I know how far God has brought me through his power and through his grace, through his sheer goodness to me. I know that apart from his grace, I would be still lying in the open field with sheep, smelling like sheep, My kids would be shepherds, and their kids would be shepherds, and we would have nothing better than what we could accomplish with our own hands, and it wouldn't be much is a wonderful promise that God would make us great because he is great. That he would make us great because of his sheer grace. And he makes David's name great. This is what he's communicating to him. Not because David is good, but because God is good. And here's another great promise as we work through this passage, that God promises his people a great eternal security. He says, I, I promise to make your people a, a, a dynasty. And I will be so graciously committed to you. Regardless of your character or their character, death and sin and time will not be able to break my commitment. Death won't stop it and sin won't stop it. His plans are unstoppable because he works in spite of us. God's plans are unstoppable because he works in spite of us. And that's what he's telling David. And God repeats himself. He repeats himself. Twice, he says, nothing's going to stop this kingdom. The kingdom will last forever. Well, let's really look. What is the word, what's the Hebrew word for forever? You know what it is? Forever. That's what it means. Yeah, nothing fancy there. Forever. That's what he's saying. He's not saying a long period of time. He says, it will have no end. Never. It will never end. He's not talking about a kingdom. He's not saying, I'm going to establish a kingdom through you. He's talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about the storyline of God's redemptive plan from the very beginning as we read in the Garden of Eden. And David is picking up on it. And he's pick, it picks up right here in 2 Samuel. He says, you made a great promise in the Garden of Eden that this would not be the end of the story. That you would provide rescue and salvation. That you would come in and you would restore all things to their intended good. That you would provide a savior that would come from the seed of, of Eve. And then you made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you made your people great. And you brought them out of slavery just like you said you would. And you're still with your people now. And you've, even as we've wandered through the desert, you're with us. And now you're affirming that promise to me still. That you haven't given up on us. And David says, okay, this makes sense. You've been talking about this before, he says. I'm remembering something about how you will make my descendants great. And he says this, do you recall, which is, he gives us a clue. He says in, in verse 19, You've spoken about your servant's house for a great while. I've, I've heard about this before. You've been talking about this time that will come, and, and now I'm sitting in the midst of it. But he has no idea the full extent of this kingdom. But he still believes it, and he knows that he is a part of it. He has no idea of the full extent, but we do. We know the full extent of this good news spoken to David. We talk about it every Christmas. You wanna, let's have some Christmas in August, shall we? Luke chapter 1, verse 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, favor with God. The grace of God has come to you. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. Seriously? I can't make this up. This is so great. And then you know the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his public ministry Mark chapter 1 documents this. Now John was arrested, John the Baptist, and Jesus comes into Galilee, and his first words in his ministry is, repent, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's do this, okay, it's time. God's kingdom has come. His forever king is coming to establish his kingdom, to take his place on the throne that will last forever this long-awaited king. So repent, turn from your ignorance, turn from your disobedience, turn from a life that doesn't know God or believe in God or trust in God. Turn from all the ways that you seek to make your name great apart from Christ and go to the true king who loves you, who promises you an eternal security, an eternal destination, an eternal relationship with him. Christianity is joyful news. When we see the word repent, we should not cower. We should not be annoyed. We should be joyful. Repentance is a joyful word and a a blessed idea. Jesus comes into the town and says, good news. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the good news. The news is a report of actual historical events when someone comes into a room and says good news you're going to think this has got to be great what is it the cancer is in remission our debt has been paid off what is it what's the great news and jesus comes onto the scene and says good news kingdom has come i'm the king my kingdom is not of this world it is different it's altogether different but follow me as the one true king and you'll never be put to shame You'll never be isolated from God again. It's good news. And it's only then that we can experience when we turn from these empty pursuits of making our name great and turn to God, turn to Jesus as our true king, that we ask him to, you rule in my life. You reign over my life. You tell me what to do and how to do it so that I can enjoy you and, and, and glorify you and know you in every way. It's only then that we can experience another promise of God to David, and that is true rest. That's exactly what he promises, that God promises people a great rest. In verse 11 he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies, from your enemies, and we will experience peace, not intermittent peace like David experienced peace, or like we experience peace right now, which is intermi- it's, it's intermittent, isn't it? We have peace one day and the next day something happens and it brings grief and sorrow and pain. And then we seek after that peace again and we pursue Christ and we find that peace and contentment again in our hearts. He's talking about a forever peace, one that's not intermittent, but one that's forever, an eternal peace. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that our our primary wrestling in this life is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual schemes of the devil. There's nothing that makes us more miserable in this life or less interesting to other people than being self-absorbed people. Isn't that true? When life is all about you, when life is all about me, you're not happy. And people don't want to be around you. When we put ourselves at the center of our lives, everything falls apart. If you center your life on, on anything other than God, your identity will be fragile and insecure and any time that identity is challenged, you will have this internal turmoil and anxiety about you. If your life is, your, and your joy in life is based on how well you perform or how well people perceive you, then you'll be in a constant state of chaos. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say I'm a shoemaker, and that's what I do, and I want to be a good shoemaker and becoming a good shoemaker becomes a source of my real identity and joy and, and significance. And, and it becomes to me more important than anything else in my life. And anything else about the, what God says to me or about because of Jesus, I, I experience a loss of identity anytime someone buys my shoes and doesn't like them. Anytime somebody blogs about it or takes pictures of them and says, look at these hideous things. Look at the shoes that I got and I hate them. I get, when I get criticized for the shoes that I make, they're, they're oddly shaped, their colors are weird, they're not cool. The shoemaker down the street just came out with a new pair. Then I will be overcome with insecurity. I'll take it personally. When my joy is in that, when my identity is in that, whether it's my job, whether it's my family, whether it's my marriage, whether it's the perception of others, how they think about me, whether it's being a pastor, and and being a pastor and having my identity wrapped up and how well I'm a pastor, then any time there's criticism, then I'm internally destroyed. You can apply this in any way. I use an analogy of being a shoemaker, of being a pastor. Apply it to your life. If we find our security... And our identity, and our joy, in anything, but what God thinks of us and the love of Jesus, that at any time we find criticism or chaos in our life, we're going to be internally insecure. If two people in marriage are more concerned with their own happiness than in loving God, then small fights become big fights, and big fights become t- catastrophe in their marriage, and their relationship begins to disintegrate because they're making something, anything, more important than knowing God. And loving him, you can apply this to anything. If any of us attempt to pursue rest for our soul by developing our identity, where God's grace is less important than our own performance, then our de- our ability to rest will be impossible. Impossible. And here's the great thing. Here's the great news. Think about David. We don't have to be great to experience the power of God. We don't have to be great. In fact, when you look at the Bible and survey the whole Bible and see who God's power comes to, it actually helps if you're not great. This is upside down from a lot of what we hear in our culture and what we pursue in our jobs, that greatness is something that all of us should be and have. But what do we do when we look at the Bible and we see, you know, it seems that God's power actually comes to those who are not great but are humble and dependent and reliable on God and and their identity is not on their performance and how good they are, but how good He is, how loving He is, that His kingdom is unstoppable. It's unstoppable because it grows in spite of us. Where does, where does your faith rest? Where does your faith in God rest? Does it rest in Him doing something for you, doing good for you, and producing something in your life? If so, you'll never be unconfused in your life. You'll always be confused in your faith. You'll always be confused about why God why is God doing what He is doing? Because if I were God, have you ever felt this way? If I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. God, I will trust you if you blank. What do you put in that? What do you put in that blank? I will trust you, God. I will trust in your power and in your providence and and in the in the reality of who you are if you fix my marriage. If you protect my children, if you establish my career, if you bring me friendship, what are you putting in that blank? God, I will truly feel your presence and know you are real if you do this for me. If you, have that, if you have that idea about God, you will never feel rest. You will never find that rest. For a while, you'll get all these things. You'll feel, you'll, you, and then you'll feel you have something to live for. You'll get all those things. God will give you a, a great marriage and a healthy marriage. You'll have a great career. You'll, you'll be promoted. You'll have great friends, and you'll look at your life, and you'll say, things are good. Things are going well for me. And you have something to live for, but then you get You get all those things, and after all the things you're seeking for, and you'll suddenly realize that it still doesn't make you satisfied in your soul. There's still longing, there's still emptiness. And so, do you see King Jesus? Do you see him? When Jesus is our king, our life revolves around him. He becomes sovereign in our life. He becomes ruler of our life. He becomes our security. Our eternal security, that, that if you're in Christ and you trust in Him, you're, you're as secure in the Father's love as Jesus Himself is. That you can never be insecure no matter what happens in your life. You're never vulnerable. When you're trusting in Christ and you're depending on Him, you're never vulnerable. But if you trust in anything else, if you put anything else in that spot where King Jesus desires to be, then you are only as secure as that thing you're trusting in. You're only as secure as your spouse, who's a sinner. You're only as secure as your job, which is never uh, permanent. You're only as secure as your love of your children, which comes and goes, we know. We're never as secure as as the the, uh, condition of our country, because that is tumultuous and it changes all the time. The gospel is not about choosing to follow the good advice from God, but about choosing, it's, being, it's by being called to follow a king. Following this king, his greatness is credited to us, and we have been justified by his righteousness, by his sheer grace. And we're convinced of his eternal security and forever peace. Death will not end it, and sin will not thwart it, because Jesus has defeated both. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he says, The kingdom has come. And then we see this king coming into society and he dies on the cross and then he raises from the dead. He's defeating death and he is defeating sin. Sin is crushed and death is defeated, securing our, the promise that he gives to us that all who trust in Jesus will be with him forever. Is Jesus your king? Do you trust him as your king? we're not a monarchy, we're a republic. We are not a monarchy, but it's so hard for us to think of it like this. But Jesus needs to be our king. He needs to rule in our hearts. He needs to rule in our lives. And when we do that, he is glorified. His grace is enjoyed so immensely in our lives. And we are always secure in him. Let's pray.